Hi, it's me, Ariana, your host. Welcome to the show. It never ceases to amaze me how it's possible to reach people all across the globe with this podcast, and it is something I profoundly love, and it is wonderful. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. From the first tickle of curiosity to an unexpected shift in how we perceive the world, there isn't a person who felt wonder. And yet the why and how of this profoundly beneficial emotion is only just beginning to be scientifically defined and explored. This episode, I am speaking with thought leader Monica Parker in her brand new book, The Power of Wonder. She explores the power of wonder to transform the way we learn, develop new ideas, drive social change, and ultimately become better humans. The power of wonder takes us on a multidisciplinary journey through psychology, neuroscience, philosophy, literature, and business to share some of the surprising secrets behind the mechanics of wonder and guides us into bringing more of it into our lives. Monica illuminates the components and elicitors of wonder and how it can transform our bodies and brains. From taking a daily awe walk to discovering a new and all-consuming interest in something you'd never given much thought to before, her book shows readers how to become more wonder-prone and reconnect with a reverence for the world and all the fascinating people in it. Monica Parker is a world-renowned speaker, writer, and authority on the future of work, and she has spent decades helping people discover how to lead and live wonderfully. The founder of global human analytics and change consultancy Hatch, whose clients include blue-chip companies such as LinkedIn, Google, Prudential, and Lego, Monica challenges corporate systems to advocate for more meaningful work lives. In addition to her extensive advocacy work, Monica has led a truly wonderful life. She has been an opera singer, a museum exhibition designer, a policy director, a chamber of commerce CEO, and a homicide investigator defending death row inmates, amongst other. Get ready for a conversation that will leave you truly inspired and fired up to encounter the world with a reignited sense of wonder. summer and I have passionately dedicated the last 12 years of my life to creating the ultimate human experience mentally, physically and spiritually based on the most powerful ancient teachings and cutting edge modern discoveries and technologies. The Superhumanized Podcast is a show committed to sharing what I have learned from the world's leading experts in order to help you achieve your full potential and create your best life ever. Monica, welcome to Superhumanize. It is such a pleasure to connect with you. Thank you so much for having me. It's a delight to be here. And the light is all mine. I've been really excited and looking forward to this conversation. First of all, you are truly a rock star. You have a fascinating 
life story that is super rich and filled with wonder. So I'm already building a little bridge to our main day. <laughs> and you're sitting in a wonderful place right now. You're actually connecting with me from Nice, France, which is one of your homes. Would you be open to sharing with our audience just a bird's eye view of what I think is a really fascinating and very rich life and basically where how you got to this point in your journey. Sure. So I was born and raised in the southern U.S. Grew up in Atlanta. And then I took a little bit of a dog-legged journey. And after university, before heading overseas, I was a homicide investigator for the Department of Justice. I worked with men and women on Florida's death row, who we believed didn't belong there. So working with the defense teams. And in between, I've really focused on studying elements around change and how people manage existential change. So obviously things like being on death row and how you manage death and sometimes even your own impending death. I've worked with people who have disabilities and working with the families who are managing the change of appreciating that they have a child with disabilities. And then in my most recent professional life, um, running Hatch, which is a human analytics and change consultancy. So working with big corporates and the people, more importantly, that work for those big corporates and helping them manage existential change, like layoffs and job loss. And what I found through all of this history was that one of the things that made people really resilient was living their life through a lens of wonder, holding the world in wonder. And it's always just been the sort of thing that's stuck in the back of my head. And I said, one day when I have a chance, I'm really going to dig deeper into that. And so that's where we are today. But I, I feel very fortunate that I have not even realizing it, driven my own life choices by it, where's the wonder here. And, uh, and it's really given me an incredible, yeah, an incredible life. Beautiful. And your incredible life, your all what you've experienced and learned, you're actually also putting forth something incredible for the general public. Oh, and I something I want to touch on real briefly, you're also an opera singer, right? Oh, yes, I was. Yeah. I won't say I was the best opera singer, but I was. It was something that I did when I lived on Cape Cod. I was fortunate enough to sing with the Cape Cod Opera. And I was very proud when I got that first paycheck. I said, I am an, a, a, an actual opera singer, a professional opera singer now. So it's something I was classically trained as a child. And one of those things that my parents said, you can't major in that. It's not a real career, but I always held it in my heart as something that I love. And I hope that it's something I can return to when I am placed in one place a little bit more steadily. Oh, amazing. I really love this journey of your life has basically filtered into what you now put out, your book, The Power of Wonder, The Extraordinary Emotion That Will Change the Way You Live, Learn, and Lead, is at this moment in time, it's coming out very soon. I've had the great pleasure to get an advanced copy, and it is truly a thought-provoking, inspiring, and moving book. And complex in such an amazing way. <laughs> I learned so many new things. So I'm really grateful that you put this book out there. I cannot recommend it highly enough. For the audience who, when this podcast is published, the book will be available. Uh, but I'd like to really do a deep dive into your book. I would like to start with what is not 
a simple question, but a necessary one and one that you definitely can answer expertly. What is wonder? Mm. And why do we need it? Yes. First, I want to thank you very much for your kind words about the book. It has been a labor of love. And so to get positive feedback really means a lot, especially being an author, you go into a little hole and you come out and birth this baby and say, goodness, I hope people like it. So thank you for that. So what is wonder? Wonder is an emotional experience and it is comprised of five elements. So it's really starts with openness to experience, then it moves through to curiosity, then next to absorption, and then the two elements of awe. So the two phases of awe being vastness and accommodation. So that comprises what I talk about, the wonder cycle. And each of these elements has um, benefits and beauty in and of themselves. But when we see them holistically, when we see them as a cycle, it becomes almost this additive upwardly mobile cycle in a sense that as we become more open, we become more curious. As we become more curious, we become more prone towards absorption. We are more open to experiences of awe, which then brings us back to openness, makes us more open. So it really becomes this additive experience if we focus on how we can can bring more of each of those elements into our life. And why do we need it? Oh, goodness, Arian, do we need it? It is absolutely, we are a world far too enamored with quick fixes, with life hacks, with speed. We're seeing a lot of, a lot of examples of cult of personality organizations that are crumbling under the weight of that. And I, the way I like to describe it is that it's as if we've given the keys to a brave new world, but our feet don't quite reach the pedals. We really are not equipped to move fast and break things in the way that we have been. And it's having an impact on our psyches, on our well-being. And then let's not even add the horrific crisis that was COVID that we will still not be able to quantify the impacts of for generations, I believe. It's, again, truly existential change an existential psychic harming in a sense. So what wonder can do for us in a world that is absorbed in this kind of environment is help us slow down. It can help us find a degree of presence. It can help us have greater humility, greater empathy. People who are higher in the wonder composite elements are more successful in work, in school, they build healthier relationships. We're able to connect more deeply with one another. From a physiological point of view, wonder lowers our blood pressure. It lowers our stress hormones. There's evidence that it decreases pro-inflammatory cytokines, which are the markers associated with a number of inflammatory diseases, including cancer and cardiovascular disease. And this direct biological pathway, I think, is really fascinating because it directly connects wonder and better health. And so I see this as an opportunity for us, not just individually to experience wonder and feel better, but it also makes us more generous, less materialistic, more humble, and better community members as well. So I see it as something that has a benefit to us individually, but also a benefit to us in communities. Mm, beautiful. It is as how what I read in your book, wonder affects us positively in every way, whether it's a, as individuals or the collective and something that you just mentioned that I also found remarkable. What we've experienced in the last years 
globally, you mentioned that personality cults, we've seen populism rise, we've seen people looking for outside of themselves for someone to fix things, which often comes from a sense of disempowerment and then bitterness or anger or fear that comes along with that sense of being powerless, which is, of course, what we're fed mm. all the time by the media, the state of the world. We work brainwashed into thinking we can't do anything about nothing. So if it bleeds, it leads. That's what they say. That's definitely, yeah, that's why they get the clicks for sure. 100% tapping right into our lizard brain, which just yep. pays attention to the types of news that cause fear and put us into fight or flight mode, into survival mode. And then, of course, we are glued to these type of news because Back in the day, tens of thousands of years ago, being glued to the perceived danger might have saved our lives. So today, it's actually ruining our lives in a sense. Mm. What I found is that when you are in a state of wonder, then it's an experience that just makes you feel connected to everything. And it gets Absolutely. you out of that state of feeling separate, which of course yeah. is a state that causes fear, fear of not having enough, fear of not surviving, fear of the other. So the state of awe gives us back this feeling of being connected. And the message in your book also, and the things you give for cultivating wonder is truly beautiful and more necessary than ever, at least in, I think, what's been our lifetimes. What I found really interesting also is the etymolo etymology of the word. And me being German-born, I read that one of the, um, the experts that you spoke to said that there's not evidence, but maybe an anecdote, something that... Yes, that it might be from one... The root of wound. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Wunde in German. Yeah. And you put it beautifully that this, basically, when you talk about Wunde, so something open, something painful, something that's raw, that the same thing happens with awe, that it opens you up and exposes you. It's a certain type of vulnerability, but... It's an openness, and that's something you just emphasized also when you talked about the five elements of wonder. Mm. Um, when we talk about wonder as an emotion, you mentioned how you know there's certain really positive impacts, whether they're psychologically or physiologically. It's actually quite difficult to study emotions scientifically. You also talk mm. about this in your book. Can you tell us why? Sure. And I think you make, and I'll come back also to that point about the wound, because I think that one of the things that appeals to me about wonder is that it is not just this happy clappy, oh, we're supposed to always be in this state of joy, because the world, that is not, that's not our steady state. We can't always be that way. Perhaps there are some gurus and yogis who can manage that sense. But if we're to be true vessels for the experience of the world, then that's going to be positive and negative. And what I love about wonder is that it is that mixed emotion, that it has both the, the positive elements, but it also allows us to, to, to appreciate that sometimes life sucks. 
how are you supposed to just be joyous about something like COVID or joyous when there's a war going on? But what we can be is in a state of wonder. We can be in a state of wonder about the resiliency of people. We can be a state of wonder of the way that people give of themselves even when they have so little. And so that is one of the reasons why I've, I really identify so deeply to wonder because I think that that etymological history says so much about the potential for the emotion that it is mixed. And in even just mixed emotions, any mixed emotions, be it awe being one of them, curiosity, nostalgia being another bittersweet. Susan Cain wrote a great book about that as well, that all of those offer us a degree of resiliency that pure valenced emotions don't. So just happiness or just unhappiness or anger. But to your question about how we can study emotions, it is difficult to study emotions. And I am, I'm not a scientist that works in a lab. I'm a social scientist who works in corporate environments, but I'm impressed and really have huge respect for the scientists who are trying to do the important lab work around studying emotions. And one of the challenges is that in some of what we call hard sciences, so things like chemistry or biology, you're able to really use the scientific method in a very rigid way. And in that means that you frequently get results that people feel are very dependable. And that's they're using a gold standard of, of random controlled trials, randomized controlled trials. When we're talking about emotions, you're dealing with a lot of subjective data, you're dealing with a lot of people expressing their own experiences. And of course, when we start to link in things like neuroscience, we can say, oh, this is happening in the brain. And I think sometimes we're really keen to associate some neuroscientific discovery immediately with the emotion that links it. And while there is benefit to that, I also think that potentially we're losing a lot of nuance because what we're, first of all, neuroscience is a very new a new science. And so sometimes I think we're jumping to conclusions. And a lot of the scientists I spoke to said that, well, these things are associated, but we can't say that this area of the brain specifically does X, Y, and Z. But also when we're talking about emotions, we are talking about human experiences and human experiences are messy. They're not discrete. They are not A plus B equals C. There's so many different elements to it. And so as scientists, they're trying to narrow down what they're studying, trying to understand, am I actually testing for wonder, for awe? Am I testing for happiness? And all of this does create a lot of complexity. And so sometimes I say, and I do say it in the book, that we need to have a little bit of poetic faith, of a little bit of of suspension of disbelief, and just allow us to experience it, to embody the emotion, as opposed to feeling the need to narrow it down. But of course, I have added a lot of science in the book to try to support some of the premises I put forward. But I think that social science sometimes gets a little bit of a bad rap because it is seen as a soft science and soft science, that term is not particularly flattering, right? Soft is not a something we use generally. It's usually pejorative. And so I'm hoping that people while reading the book will see that soft science is real science, but that also it requires us to feel, to have nuance, to not feel the need to have precision in every result, but rather for it to be something that illuminates our understanding of ourselves. And Beautiful. And I think we're also at a time where 
The scientific method is amazing. It's gotten us to places we wouldn't have gotten to otherwise, starting with the developments in the Renaissance where certain re religious assumptions and ways to view the world and run the world were put aside and the scientific method started to take hold. However, I think it's very important that we don't base everything on one specific method that may fail us in places where the reality of how this world is composed and not just of things that we can touch, greater whole, the greater meaning of it all may completely escape us. With regards to something you said before, and thank you for giving us this overview on the science and why it is actually difficult to study emotions scientifically. You said something before, and you also talk about this in your book, which really resonated with me. And that is that when we look at wonder, it's not about this, everything is happy and everything is good all the time. It allows room for emotions that we would usually label, quote, negative. The emotions are very important because they're part of life. They also enrich yeah. our lives in a sense. We live more intensely. And you also say that we live in a world where it's all about happiness. You want yeah. to be happy, become happy, the pursuit of happiness. You say that wonder is not only more achievable, but also more beneficial yeah. than happiness. And yeah. already started talking about this a little bit before, but I'd like to dive a little deeper yes. into this. So for starters, it's quite interesting because, again, when scientists are looking at certain elements of wonder, and in particular awe, they tend to want to ensure that what they're testing for is not just positive emotions in general. So they will frequently hold tests that are directly com comparing people saying they're happy about a certain experience or they're feeling awe. And what we found over and over again is the quantum of benefits in the wonder and awe bucket are much larger than those in the happiness bucket. One of the reasons also is that we are just so bad at knowing what makes us happy. So this idea of what's called effective forecasting or miswanting, in essence, what we believe will make us happy. We frequently think that material things will make us happy. They generally don't. We think that experiences, certain experiences will make us happy. Sometimes they do, but over time they may not as the novelty wears off. And what we find often, and there's some really interesting work being done about this idea of what creates a rich life, and you use that term a lot about a life that is rich, we will tend to sometimes over-index our ex expectation of a eudaimonic happiness, and I'll explain what I mean by that. But when we look at elements that are rich, things that that feed our curiosity, things that feed our intellectual growth. Those are the things that if we look backwards in, there was a piece of research done where a scientist looked at different people's, after they died, different people's regrets or just as they were dying. And the regrets that most people expressed were those aspects of their life that they did not have a rich life. So things like, I wish I had gotten a degree or I wish I had spent more time with my friends and family, as opposed to certainly not material aspects, but even some of those more exciting, adventurous things that we tend to think will bring us a sense of happiness. So happiness is quite interesting. Obviously, if we go back to the start of happiness, 
and the history of happiness, it was seen as something that was luck. It was just the gods granted it to us, the root, again, the etymology of that being hap, which is luck, and that it was something that the gods bestowed to us or didn't. Then as Socrates actually came in and said, no, I believe that happiness is something that we can create. But he wanted to go deeper in that and looked at hedonic happiness, which was the type of happiness that is brought to us by like wine, women, and song, the things that are very hedonic that we enjoy. And th there's positives to that as well. And then eudaimonic happiness, which is really a, a more intellectual or epistemic type of happiness, a happiness that is brought to us by the pursuit of things that are virtuous or that it, that inspires intellectually. But what's interesting about happiness is, again, because we are so poor at understanding what brings us happiness, we tend to spend a lot of emotional energy chasing it and then also feeling incredibly guilty when we don't find it, saying, oh, my life is good compared to X, Y, and Z. I should be happier. And then we're combining our failure to find happiness with this judgment and of ourselves, which is not healthy. And so where wonder comes in, and I think it is more beneficial, is that it allows us to have that mixture, that messy mixture that is our life that, in fact, we should we should revel in, which includes elements that are positive, but also negative. And so we'll use the death of a loved one. You're not going to be necessarily joyous about that, but you can definitely hold that moment in wonder. And you can say, this is a time where I am where I'm opening myself to this experience, where I am seeing the vastness of what life means, of the impact of what the loss of life means. And then you can internalize that in a place of wonder. And that mixed emotion gives us greater resiliency. There was a piece of research that showed that people, when looking back at the death of their spouses, people who were able to look at both the positive and the negative aspects of their spouse, of their deceased spouse, were able to move through their grief more effectively. And so this power of mixed emotions is really critical. And it's probably the main reason why I believe that wonder is, is more beneficial. But also, wonder frequently brings us happiness. So if we seek wonder, then we have a good chance of getting happiness along with all the other benefits, along with the openness, the curiosity, the presence, and the awe. So I think that it's just much more holistic and more achievable. Beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing this with us, Monica. It's truly profound. And it, it also just hit home a little bit for me. I recently lost in my family someone I loved very much, my uncle. I'm so sorry. Oh, thank you. It's, and I remembered that when families spend time together at a celebration of life, it was truly also a space, a shared emotional space. That's how I felt it. The sadness of the loss was, of course, there, but also the wonder. And I was not, in my mind, quite able to express it in the way you just did, where you realize the vastness of this life and the, what loss means, but also what it means to have had love and connection in this life, in a sense. Mm -hmm. So that really sets something straight for me right now. You know how sometimes you read something and you've experienced it emotionally, mm -hmm. you weren't quite able to put it in your own words. Mm -hmm. you did that for me. So thank you for that. That was beautiful. Oh, I'm, I'm delighted to hear that. Wonder is something what just also came to my mind when we're children and there's actually our lives are full of wonder for us. And there's actually an author who I 
like very much and who in his own, it was his more his autobiographical work. He fictionalized his own <clears throat> youth. And that's Roald Dahl. He, he wrote mm. books like Matilda and Witches and James and the Giant Peach and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. He also wrote a, a book, or it might even be two books about his youth. And the first book is called Boy. And mm. he tells stories that are funny and elating. He also tells a story that holds some darkness and some sadness, some of the things that he experienced. But they're all these vignettes are told through a lens of wonder. And so I wonder, no pun intended, why is it that when we're children, the world is so full of wonder for us? And why do we seem to get so disconnected from the sense of wonder when we become adults. Mm. So I think some of it is is biological and some of it is sociological. We'll look at the biological and then the neurological first. So obviously when when children are young, everything is novel, right? Everything is new. And when compared to the other schema, so the different building blocks of our experiences, each each experience that we have becomes compared to what we've got quite large, right? Because what's in the child's brain comparatively are lots of tiny little building blocks. And every time you add another one, it becomes that much more meaningful. I love the scientist Alvaro Pasqualioni who developed the term neuroplasticity. He talks about our brain as if it was a ski slope. And so our personality will form sort of the the topography of the slope, but our experiences, each time we take a route down the ski slope, that starts to create our neural pathway. So when we are young, we have a completely clear piece, right? It's just pristine snow and we can carve whatever direction we want. And in that, there is a lot of wonder because everything feels new. As we get older, we stop seeing that it's not that there is less new because goodness, there's so much in the world to see as new. But what starts to happen is we've gone down that ski slope so many times, our brain starts to get into ruts. And so our brains can manage all of the cacophony of information that's coming at it at all times. It just starts to shut down a lot of seeing the newness and just go down the familiar routes because it's quicker, it's more efficient. And so our brains like efficiency. So some of that is just as we age, our brains want to make our life easier. We have more and more schema, these little building blocks that are built of our experiences. And so we have more ways that our brain could say, oh, that's not new. I have something to refer to it. And and so there's nothing to notice here. That's part of one of the reasons we shut down that part of our brain that sees novelty. But the second, I believe, is sociological and still and quite damaging. I believe that our school systems have really worked to drive wonder out of children's lives. And I know that there is a move among many independent schools to try to bring that back in. I think we see it a little bit in in very young learners, but as they get older through middle school and certainly into high school, when the brain is still very plastic and there's still lots of opportunity for wonder, we tend to abandon it in pursuit of standardized test scores. We create very competitive environments, which is contrary to wonder. 
And we're driving people towards a sense of curiosity that is very closed. So a sense that there is a single right answer. And when we find the single right answer, we are rewarded for that. And so what starts to happen is we say, okay, great. I'm going to be judged on whether I know this answer. I'm going to learn the answer. I'm not going to learn anything else. So that is really shutting off our openness. It's shutting off our curiosity. Certainly, we don't give kids a lot of time to feel present in their environments. And what we end up having is adults who tend to have a great need for cognitive closure. So we want to know, we find comfort in having that single right answer. We don't want. And what we end up with is a type of curiosity that is driven by getting answers rather than seeing holistically rather than following down rabbit holes and enjoying that process. And so I believe that sociologically, we really tend to reward coming up with closed answers and and killing that sense of meandering curiosity. And it's absolutely to our detriment. And especially if you look at what's happening, not only in the United States, but also in Europe, what has been happening in Brazil, where we are so trained to seek these clothes, these simple answers, that we fall into the traps of listening to people or voting for people who pretend to have answers, super simple answers, or actually yeah. very complex and nuanced issues. And on another note, also the way we've been teaching children, so not only this mindset of seeking closed answers, because that's what we then become comfortable with. And being good little parrots who repeat and learn by heart to give certain answers in a multiple choice test. Mm -hmm. But also, if you look at how the world has been developing and that a lot of the jobs as we know them today will fall by the wayside, they already have started falling mm -hmm. the wayside, but even more so in the next years. So the way we have been, um, edu quote, educating and training the children will not work for this new environment and work environment that is going to be right in our present much quicker than we expected. And so I believe that helping children to keep and to develop a sense of wonder will actually also help them become truly productive adults mm. who can then also contribute to a so global society that will be vastly changed and vastly different from what we have known in the last decades. Absolutely. A child today graduating from high school will have 18 jobs in six industries. And I've been tracking this statistic that's developed out of a group called McCrindle in Australia. And I've been tracking it for about 10 years and it just keeps increasing. I think when I started, it was 15 jobs in four industries. Now it's all the way up to 18 jobs in six industries. This means that people are going to have to become not just good at learning, but unlearning. This means that they need to be able to wipe that piece themselves to lay new tracks where they're not falling into ruts. And this is really the key differential between surface curiosity and deep curiosity, people who can explore in a deeply curious way. And that's the wonder that is the verb, right? To wonder the curious element. And if we can teach our children to be deeply curious, it results in people who are more tolerant. It results in people who can hold two competing ideas in their mind at the same time. Sometimes two things that seem opposite can be true, and they can be true at the same time. One of the challenges with people who have 
high need for cognitive closure and low need for cognition. So basically those are psychological terms that mean that they like to have an answer and a clear answer very quickly, and they don't want to have to think about it too much. Those people tend to be very enamored with autocratic leaders. They tend to become really susceptible to cults and to cult of personality types of personalities. And charisma does drive wonder. And this is the dark side of wonder, that that wonder in and of itself creates fertile ground. But what gets planted in that fertile ground, if the wrong things get planted, then sometimes what you end up with are people who fall into the, the trap of charisma and follow people because it gives them a sense of comfort. They like knowing where they sit in the pecking order. Even if it means that they're lower than other people and other people are below them, they want to have that certainty. So when things are uncertain, it drives us. And again, this is neurologically and biologically, we are driven to want certainty. But what I believe is that if we can hold the world in wonder, then we can also hold competing ideas at the same time. And that ability to find the nuance, to to find that that multivalent experience is very positive and will create a more tolerant, empathetic society. Yes. And if we're able to hold the world in wonder and have a strong sense of wonder and are open towards it, I think then it'll not be as easy to trap us with the, the darker side of wonder. Because mm. I think it's quite natural for us as human beings to be drawn towards wonder. And mm. especially if it's not something we experience every day, then the first thing that pops up might latch onto us. I'm curious, and of course, I've read about this also in your book, but I think this is something that also some people in the audience may have been thinking, especially after the last things we touched upon. Why did we as humans even develop wonder in the first place? Yeah, absolutely. I think there are a lot, of course, openness to experience. If we go through each of the the elements, openness to experience is a is a personality trait. So that is something that a large percentage we are born with. So f- about half of that is that that topography that I talked about. That's what was contributed to us from our parents when they made us. And then the other 50% is up until about the age of 20. That's when our personality develops. So this is an element of our personality, one of five primary personality traits that it can be seriously constructed through our learning experiences. And if we are in wonder-based learning, then we will be more open. And this is really one of the personality traits that allows us to have greater creativity, to seek new ideas. And there's probably one of the rationales behind that is that when we are more open, we're able to see solutions that we hadn't been been able to see before. If we look at curiosity, obviously curiosity is about us that being able to balance the desire for more information so that we can that so that we can stay alive and that's where our this dopamine cycle kicks in so the idea that we become very excited about new information as we learn it and then our brain wants to reward that because our brain wants us to constantly seek more information and as we do that, it becomes this trade-off. So we're the trade-off between whether we're seeking more information or we're taking that information and applying it to other thinking. And then when we get into absorption, of course, absorption 
is the one of the key elements that allows us to fall into flow, but it's also one of the things that allows us to focus most deeply and to be present. But I think the most fascinating bit of all of the wonder elements when we look at the history is to look at the history of awe. So the belief in the history of awe is that we probably developed this for several reasons. The first potentially is to, we talked about leadership and charisma of leadership, was to quickly identify natural leaders in a group. And so we, when we feel that sense of charisma and we look at someone and say, they're so strong, they're so capable, they'll keep us safe, then we know that's a person that we can trust. In addition, there is a belief that perhaps this desire to to, or not even a desire, a need to interpret patterns in our environment, be it weather patterns or growth patterns of crops or patterns of migration of, of animals that will eat for survival, that understanding those patterns becomes critically important to our brains. Therefore, when patterns are broken, when our expectation of a pattern is broken and we have that expectation violation, then that creates a moment where we pay attention. So it's our brain's way of saying, notice this is really different. And so I, that's one of those is sort of evolutionary ways, the, the evolutionary heritage of that emotion. And then another belief also is that some of the things that give us a sense of awe and wonder tend to be environments where either we are able to see large vistas, so be it a, a mountain range or an ocean, and that is a place where we feel safe because we're able to see a larger environment and gather lots of information from that one view. Um, but also there's a, a something that's called safe threat. So where we feel a little threatened, but in that space, maybe it's a, a, an area of light in a dark forest, we feel safe. And so the comparative between safety and not, so safety and threat also is one of those differentials that we notice and probably contributory to why we developed this sense of awe in the first place. Something that also was really interesting to me in your book was you talked about how awe is valued differently in different cultures. Yeah. For example, you talked about Americans tending to value high arousal states that we're very enthusiastic types of people <laughs> and that in contrast, the cultures that are more collectivist, they prefer calmer, low arousal states mm. that support the harmony of the, of the group, of the collective. And America, of course, very individualistic, very individualistic. We like success stories of individuals. And you reference a study in I think, believe 26 countries in, across six continents. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I'm really fascinated. Sure. So it's really interesting because for starters, the word um, awe has mm. quite an interesting history. So if we think of the root of the word, it's both positive and negative. Awful and awesome mm. have the same root, right? But certainly in American language, the term awesome, like it's just, we just use it as if it's, it's lost its original meaning, which was very much the way that the that the philosophers behind the sublime saw it, which was there was a good deal of fear and trembling. So this background of the term was one of fear of trembling. It came from even the Nordic history of the helm of awe, which is also sometimes translated as the helm of terror. So it was this idea that that awe could be both 
incredible and breathtaking. And yet there was always a little hint of this is scary, though. And I think that it should be scary because true awe breaks open the mold of your previous assumptions and reforms them. That's not always a pleasant experience. It can be, but not always. But with time, the the emotion, the word itself has started to become much softer, more positive, certainly in um, the U.S. Globally, though, we start to see fascinating differentials. So not just Asia, Asia certainly being a place that looks at at awe and it is a more collectivist environment and also has a bit more of that negative fear and trembling, but also South America as well has more of that collectivist culture. And some of the language when you translate it has a bit more of that fear base. In the US, absolutely, we tend to focus much more on the positive, high arousal, oh my God, my mind was blown. And that needs to be something that's positive. And so it's quite interesting. However, what this study showed is that awe and wonder is a universal emotion. And people, when they express it, tend to also express a lot of the physiological elements. So one of them was about like the steam of happiness. And some talk about like having wonder tears. So they talk about this physiological feeling that you have that is a warmth inside. And then a moment that usually would be typically associated with something more not negative, like tears, like shivers, like goosebumps. And so these these physiological qualities, when mixed with it, it's interesting to see all of the different etymologies in different languages and how it ends up being translated. But what we do know is that it is a universal emotion and that every just interprets it differently and every nation, every Every region has their own interpretation, but in general, Westerners tend to index it much more positively. It's really fascinating how certain emotions affect different things and have a different effect in people. But there's also this collective sense of wonder. In the book, you, for example, you talk about the moon landing, which at the time, 600 million people watched it, and it really shifted the perspective, not mm. only for the astronauts who had this experience and were able for the first time to actually look at our beautiful planet, but also for the people on Earth watching it, it shifted perspective. So I'd like to talk a bit about how wonder can change the world. It really is. And I actually, you just said that and I got goosebumps thinking about it because it's, it, I love that story. One of the biggest shared human experiences in history, the moon landing. And it was watched by so many people. And it was then what followed the first opportunity for us to see our own planet from space. And of course, as you mentioned, when the astronauts returned, they had experienced what's known as the overview effect, which fundamentally changed their perspective of the world. These were very serious military men and women who went up. And when they came back, they became interested in things like transcendental meditation. They became environmental and their entire perspective of global, geo-global politics changed. And so I think that 
that is a fascinating result. And how it can change us, what it does is it creates a degree of collective engagement that almost no other emotion does. And so it creates a sense of fellowship, a sense of connectedness. And I believe that the moon landing being a perfect example and some of the positive aspects of COVID as well, that it becomes a shared experience that in that wonder transforms all of us. And so when we share that, wonder shared is wonder multiplied. When we're able to share that experience with other people, have the language, the emotional granularity and the language to be able to express it means that we are able to drive social change in a fundamentally different way. And we see that's really the positive and the negative of the charisma of wonder in that it can certainly drive cults, but it also could be what drives the modern sustainability movement. Many credit the moon landing with being one of the aspects that that drove the modern sustainability movement. If you read any of the work by Rachel Carson, who is by far one of the the champions now since passed away of the modern sustainability movement, she her words are suffused with wonder. Really, that is the basis of most sustainability messaging. And actually, I think we've gotten a little far away from it, frankly, when we're talking about carbon and degrees of warming, all important. But when we're not focusing on the aspects of the wonder of the world that we are going to lose, then I think that we're missing out on an opportunity to tap into some emotional elements that actually drive behavior as opposed to use that stuff for the government and have them create policy on it. But for us, I think as individual humans, we need to continue to connect to that emotional element so that we can, our behavior can be changed. This is fascinating. I've never made the connection between the moon landing and the sustainability movement. I'll have to look into the author and this sadness, this grief, or this fear of losing this wonderful world that we have. I think somebody who encapsulated that at basically made us feel that very intensely was uh, James Cameron with the movie Avatar. A lot mm. of people back then when the movie came out left the movie theaters with a deep sense of sadness because they connected what was happening in the movie and they're seeing this beautiful, gorgeous world that was getting wrecked. They connected this to what was happening with us on our mm. planet. Very curious to see how this magnificent storyteller and actually also environmental activist Cameron will yeah, continue telling the story in the second part of Avatar. I agree. I think it's a, that's a fascinating example. And my favorite film that that to me is so emblematic of wonder is is Contact. And of course, written the book as well. But I just love the line because she so perfectly captures the ineffability of wonder. She's seeing all these and this basically the entire cosmos is just flashing in front of Ellie, the main character. And she says, no words, they should have sent a poet. And I just love that idea that sometimes we are so overwhelmed by the enormity, the beauty, the experience 
of our world that it just literally it defies language. And I think that's, again, one of the challenges as well when we're studying this is how do you study an emotion that defies language when language is the mechanism by which we communicate it? And so I think the greater emo diversity that we can have, the more we can empower ourselves with the language to express these experiences rather than just saying, wow, which is we'll do as well, that I think that helps us create deeper connectivity to one another. And it helps us understand what brings us in the future, how we can seek and find more wonder. And when you talk about seeking and finding wonder, in the book, you also give us an outline about wonder as a practice. Share how we can cultivate a wonder mindset. Can you give us a few examples of how we can become more wonder prone? Yeah, absolutely. I think that one of the challenges and why I didn't write the book just about awe, because obviously awe is a major component of wonder, is that awe feels very inaccessible. It feels like something that we may or may not be able to find, even if it's in the quotidian. And what I wanted people to realize is that this is a mindset we can create, that we can always be working every day to be more open, to be more curious, to be more present. And then we may experience awe because of those other elements. The key piece, I believe, to creating a wonder mindset and to wonder as a practice is what I call slow thought. And so there's a lot of different pieces we can put under slow thought. Chalk this up as another reason why we should all be meditating. Absolutely. Meditation is one of the ways that we can experience slow thought. That Like journaling, narrative journaling, storytelling, and tapping into the stories we tell about ourselves is another key way that we can experience more wonder and cultivate a wonder mindset. Nostalgia and some of those bittersweet, those mixed emotions, allowing us to wallow a little bit in those moments rather than trying to move to some kind of emotional closure is really helpful. I love a wonder walk. There's great around having a wonder walk. And what's great is what makes a wonder walk? You decided it is. That's it. It's really an exercise in priming is to say, I'm going to go out and find things that give me a sense of wonder today. And that is really a powerful mechanism that you are manifesting that experience and saying, I am going to find things that give me a sense of wonder. But that only happens when we slow down, when we are in an environment that worships at the altar of the cult of overwork, when we constantly need to be plugged in and on our devices, when we overfill our days so that we don't have to think, all of these things are what gets between us and wonder. Wonder is always there. It's waiting to be discovered. But we really only find that when we slow down. And, I, and again, that's one of the reasons why I wanted people to appreciate the whole cycle, that presence piece that occurs if you don't slow down. If you don't really observe what's happening in your environment, then you will not be able to experience the expectation violation that gives you the wow and woe of awe. You simply will miss it. You'll move through it. You'll skip over it. And so that ability to practice presence, to quiet rumination, and to allow ourselves to feel sometimes the ickiness of mixed emotions really helps us tap into wonder. And I think that's the foundation of wonder. Thank you for sharing these beautiful practices with us, Monica. For people who would like to learn more about you or reach out, where can they find you? Yep. They can find me at monicastashparker.com. 
And of course, you can purchase the book at anywhere where you would purchase your book, and it will be available in hardcover as well as ebook. So I hope you visit your local bookstore, perhaps, and support some independent bookstores. And and I really hope that people find it's a a book that they can keep returning to, that it's something that resonates with them for different reasons over time. It is truly a beautiful book. I can't wait until I can start gifting it. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, Ariana. I really appreciate it. No, thank you, Monica. It was an absolute pleasure to connect with you. Thank you for sharing with us and thank you for putting out this beautiful book. I think it will be inspiring and even life-changing for many people. Thank you so much. I really, that means so much to me and I hope that's the case. If it's just that for one person, then my job is done. Oh, I know it will be the case. And thank you for coming on the show. This was a really beautiful conversation. I appreciate it so much. Thank you so much. Have a great one. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution.